talked to so many other founder friends. I had one founder friend who were, we were, they were, had an offer to sell for, you know, again, life, like huge, huge sums of money as well. And they didn't. And I asked them why. And they said, I would just start the same company again. And that makes total sense. Like if you're just going to start the same company again, why start from zero? Just keep working on the company that you love. If that changes, when that changes, right? Uh, in the Derek Sivers, right? If you if you care, you have to you have to let it go. Uh, that's a that's a great 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 line. That was really important to me. If you really truly care, you have to walk away. If you realize that it's not it for you anymore, and we cared so deeply, and the fact that I wasn't just dreaming about ways to innovate, postmark and, and Wildbit and all that, I was dreaming about a hotel or, or what have you. I was that's a clearest sign as you ever need it, but also just this a reminder constantly, yep, I'm on the right path. This is the path for us, as painful as it is, and it was painful, uh, it is the right journey. Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your business. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and the theme of today's show is about knowing when's the right time to sell your company. But before we get there, as you'll hear from today's guest, Natalie Nagel, back in 2016, she chose to adopt a four-day work week for her employees. Now, if you're interested to learn why and the impact that had on her business, I've linked to a really interesting article she wrote recently on the topic, which I think you'll really enjoy. And you can find that article in the show notes section, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Quick shout out to Deb who left an awesome review over at Apple Podcasts. She said, rave review. I love John Morlow and his podcast and guests. He inspired me to start my own podcast, The Sim Cafe. Keep us growing. Many thanks, Deb. Deb, thank you so much for the review. Congratulations on the podcast. And if you want to help support the show just like Deb, I've added a link in the show notes section of this podcast where you too can leave a review on Built to Sell Radio. So thank you everyone for the continued support. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about today's guest, Natalie, who back in 2009 launched Postmark, which helps businesses deliver emails to their customers quickly. Now, in today's episode, you're going to learn how to develop passionate employees within your company, how to create raving fans that refer customers, how to distinguish between burnout and fatigue, how to create a list of demands for an acquirer when selling your business and how to establish a positive relationship with an acquirer, plus so much more. Here to share with John the full story of how she sold her company Postmark in a life-changing exit is Natalie Nagel. Enjoy. Natalie Nagel, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. I'm excited to be here. So I must confess, I don't know what Postmark does. So I think I'm the only person on the internet that doesn't. So tell me about this company. What is this product, Postmark? Like lay it out for me in layman's terms. Yeah, I don't think you're the only one on the internet. I definitely sometimes, we've always kind of built infrastructure products or the things that power the internet in some ways. Postmark is an application email uh, product that allows other web Web websites, web apps, send their emails. So, uh, and for a long time, it was transactional only. We do both transactional and marketing emails now, but it really is the the tr- emails that get triggered based on a user's action in a lot of ways. So, if you think about uh, a Twitter 
comment notification or a DM and in your inbox shows up an email that says like, hey, somebody sent you a DM on Twitter or you make a purchase on on an on a e-commerce site and you get a an, uh, shipping confirmation email or uh, uh, password reset emails. All of those emails, they need to go through a, a, a mail server, a system to allow it to come through quickly and right to the inbox and you want to be able to manage uh, opens and clicks and track it and all of those things. So Postmark was all, sits in the middle of your software development team that's building your website or like your Shopify site or your web app or whatever and your and 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 customer and recipient. So all of those kind of it, it lets those emails funnel through. And we created, you know, the API and the the app the uh, the technology so that software developers can plug into it and then also all the visibility into how many emails are you sending? Are they getting through? Uh, you know, are people clicking on them? Like all of that data. What made us really special was is that we are uh, the fastest to the inbox. So in a lot of ways, transactional email, those kind of like one-on-one -on -one emails that your application sends are really valuable and they need to get there quickly, not just to the inbox. I always, always joke, nobody waits for their Gap newsletter, but they wait for their password reset if they're trying to log in and buy something, right? You bet so they we, do, yeah. we always optimize for speed, not just getting to the inbox to make sure that the your customer's interaction with your website or your your product were always seamless and very quick. So that's- And that's there's always this, and there's this data floating around. I'm sure you've seen it somewhere, Natalie, where if, a salesperson can get in touch with someone who fills out a form on your website. Like for every minute that goes by, the chances that that shopper is going to pick up the phone and act drops off a cliff. Like after five or six minutes, it's really, really low. And so getting to those people very quickly after someone takes an action on your website it is incredibly yeah. important. That's the kind of stuff you would optimize for. Absolutely. So it's on the sales side and on the support side. So there was always yeah. we had a great uh, a great story from a long long time ago of a, a big product uh, that everybody knows that blew up and uh, the the delay in receipt. They were they were sending out license keys. It was a gaming company and they were sending out license keys and somebody would purchase a license key and immediately switch the Gmail to, or their email to find that license key so they can play the game. A second went by, 30 seconds went by, a minute went by, maybe three. They think it's something broke. They put their credit card in, nothing happened. Now they're sending a support request. And so this company that was like up and coming now, you know, ballooned and became a billion dollar company, but was up and coming. And all of a sudden their inbox, their support inbox is ballooning. Now they feel like they have to hire all these people to like now support this thing because they're getting all the support. But in reality, all they needed to do was switch to an email provider that was going to get it there quickly. So it works on both ends. I mean, it, in a lot of ways, these are the most important emails. Uh, and they're where you're building your, we don't build relationships one-on-one -on -one anymore, right? We don't go to our corner store. We don't, so you're building these relationships with your customer through these emails that go out based on their actions, inactions, like, you know, shopping cart abandonment emails, like all that kind of stuff. And so you really want to make sure that they, they deliver the expectations that you kind of put out there. So yeah, they're really, really, really critical. And you guys are in some ways the anti-SaaS. I'm going to call you <laughs> that because I've spent a little bit of time learning about you through your website, both you and your husband, Chris. And what strikes me is you break virtually every rule there is <laughs> in, in SaaS, uh, software as a service. You know, uh, my understanding is you offer a four-day work week that uh, you're 
you know, not all about the numbers all the time, which most SaaS founders, you know, they can riddle off, L, you know, LTV to CAC, months to recover CAC, uh, <laughs> cost per account acquired, all like just like off the top of their head. And it sounds like you both took a slightly different approach to building a software company. Tell me about that. I think the the reality is that the industry evolved and we just didn't evolve with it. I mean, we've been doing this for so long. The company actually while but just turned 22. Postmark was uh, over a decade old. Our first product Beanstalk is 15 years old. And so we've been doing SaaS for a long, no, that's not right, 13 years old. And we've been doing SaaS for a really long time. And uh, in the early days, uh, the promise of SaaS, software as a service to a lot of startup founders, and I think I can say this with full confidence, was that you could build a really successful business being an introvert. You didn't need a sales team. You didn't need to talk to your customers. You could just build a product that customers really loved. You didn't have to worry about the, the finance, the math of it. You know, it was recurring revenue and, it, you know, you didn't have inventories and all these things of our parents. Uh, and that's what we fell in love with. Now, I'm not personally not an introvert. My husband probably more introverted in that way. But, you know, as we got together and grew the business, but that was the promise of, of software as a service. The joke that runs, you know, deep in some of these founder circles that I run in, in the software industry is that the more MBAs came into the SaaS, the, the software business, the less fun it became. So a lot of that math and the, it's, it's, there are really, uh, uh, there's playbooks now, right? There's ways in which you spin up a, a company. You Everybody wants recurring revenue for a good reason because it's amazing. And you tie into this playbook, right? You tap into this playbook. You have some pretty consistent ways of doing it. But for us, because we got into business because we wanted to be entrepreneurs in the most pure sense of the word, really, really just have an itch to change things and be really creative and to do it our way and to be stubborn and, you know, to not have a sales team, to not be the business of our parents. And so uh, we really just fought all of that. Uh, and we also were really lucky, right? Like we, because we were in it so early, because we were able to focus really on culture and, and, and hiring the most brilliant team in the world, right? We didn't have to worry about some of these things. And to be completely honest with you, we were always building a business that was supposed to serve us. Like I, I have this, you know, I believe that businesses exist to serve people and we were making plenty of money. So like, I didn't need to, uh, I don't know what CAC is. I mean, I know what CAC is now, but it took me, uh, I, I, that's a new term for me. I couldn't tell you our LTV. I mean, I probably have that somewhere, but when we, you know, when we were selling that we probably calculated it. Um, but really it was a business as simple as possible, build something customers really, really love, make sure they're super happy, make sure they're fans of yours and they're going to spread the word. And they did, and they do make sure your team feels supported and fulfilled to do great work so that they support your customers that, so they feel like they're getting the best deal out there, right? The best product with the best service, you know, and the rest just kind of falls into place. And that was, that was the drive. Right. And that just, I mean, it's frankly why we sold because as soon as we, the, the, the expectation that we have to change that, we lost some of that interest, some of that creativity, that kind of uh, choosing our own path. What made you lose that? Did you bring on a financer or did was there an outside investor asking you to, to formalize no, things? we never had any outside investment. While it was always just owned by Chris and I. Uh, and so there was no... No, nobody else. Uh, always bootstrapped, always profitable. We had no other, 
nobody else to answer to. I think the truth is that Postmark is this incredible product and it was growing fast. And we, you know, to backtrack a little bit, part of that creative, like that kind of that entrepreneurial spirit was we always had multiple products. It was a big part of who Chris and I are, is, you know, kind of always wanting something new, something interesting, or something different, not interesting, but something different. And uh, Postmark was really just requiring all of all of the resources and the energy and the effort of the whole company because it was growing fast large by our standards a very large product a uh, big team that supported it lots and lots and lots of thousands tens of thousands of customers and so it was uh important for us to be honest with what that product needed and that at the time i mean along with a lot of other things that we can get into kind of what, what our mental state was and why we chose to, to, to transact the, we knew that the next, it was like, you know, that it was the next hike up to the next plateau, right? There was going to be a climb and that climb was going to be uh, more financially driven, more tactical. We needed a sales team. We needed to get into bigger accounts, uh, bigger customers who wanted to cut it. When I sold Postmark, we had not a single custom contract not one. So like it was a very, we were, we were committed to simple business, really, really committed. And so we knew that we were reaching that plateau that we needed that the next scale up was going to be to expand past that. And uh, it was just going to be different. And I don't, it's not that different by any stretch. It was just different. I think the, the reflection we've had over time is we sold six months ago. So the reflection we've had in the last six months, but also kind of leading up to it was we, we lost the the passion and the drive to take that next climb. I mean, amazing product with the most brilliant team on the on earth. I, I truly believe that. And as people, Chris and I just didn't we just didn't have it in us to do that climb. And, I, that's and not to say I can't scale something later. I just didn't I just didn't want to do it. Describe the the point you were at at that at that moment so uh i know we have to be careful around some of the numbers so what, what proxy would you use for helping listeners get a sense of how big your company was at, at this point that you're discussing that you sort of lost the the will to go to the next level in terms of either revenue or number of employees or, or some proxy for size if you if you don't mind sharing yeah we were 40 employees um we were uh we had three products at the time. Um, we still have one product that, that still runs. Uh, and, you know, like, I, like you said, we can't show revenue and all of that. But, you know, the transaction was a life-changing sum of money. <laughs> I think I can say that. Um, and inclusive of the fact that we uh, we gave away 10% to the team. So part of the, the way the deal is structured is that 10% of the total sales went to the team. Nobody had stock, but that was kind of the way we, Chris and I mapped it out. And... There are folks on the team who um, received also life-changing money, folks who've been with us for a really long time. So there was enough there to people can start, you know, doing whatever napkin math they want. But it, it was it was it was wonderful in the sense that software is this gift where you can build a really meaningful business and have an extreme outcome between the multiples of revenue instead of EBITDA compared to, you know, what my dad sold his business. So uh, big enough from that perspective. That's super helpful. So you're at 40 employees and you're looking out of the landscape and you're saying to get to the next level, 
we've got to move up market. We got to get into custom contracts. We need to, you know, get into large enterprise SaaS if we're going to sort of keep growing. Is am I reading between the lines correctly? I, I think there's on on the product side, there's a lot of that for sure, right? We we were starting to talk internally about can we do a wild bit way of doing sales, you know, so we're not, you know, bombarding people's mailboxes with, you know, uncomfortable language that I get all day in my inbox that I just don't yep. understand. Uh, but also on the operational side, right? So as a company, how do you scale the number of employees that you need, uh, the, the type of, uh, of uh, benefits, but also just the type of uh, where we place our efforts and energies, right? You go from 40 to 50 to 60, these are big jumps. And so how does the, how big is your people team, right? How big is the team that needs to just operationalize the, everybody moving forward? And, you know, if I'm being really honest, everybody, we're, we're all, you know, business owners here. It was starting to really put a pressure on the margins. One of the beautiful things about recurring revenue and why we got into this business is we got to do all these really fun things, four day work weeks. Um, we've had all kinds of things, big retreats, all, all these things that we've done over the years, with profit sharing, all of that, because we had really healthy margins because you are like, it's, it's so capital efficient, this entire model, it becomes much more expensive the bigger you get because there is, you know, you can't operation. I couldn't figure out how to, op well, I knew the path, but I had to operationally uh, grow the team and, and the expense of that, like just how to run the business. And then we also had to figure out how to then equally go up market or, or grow the revenue at a faster clip because that's how they had to pay for each other to protect the margins. So there was this like just there was some pressure there on, uh, you know, scaling and at what cost, because for us with no no investors, nobody to breathing down our necks, that margin was our income, right? Our future, how we took care of ourselves and our families, but also the team that was their profit sharing. It was, you know, the pay increases, the benefits that we could offer. So there really was this question of like, if that shrinks, then the net shrinks, but we're bigger, our, what are we serving, right? So like in a, in a lot of ways, when you, you have investment, you're serving a, a different audience and you have to get to a certain size so that everybody can transact and people hopefully will get paid. But in our case, it was kind of putting pressure in areas that were a little bit different. But you're right. Operationally, I had to scale that. And I also on the top end had to kind of figure out how to do uh, the next sophistication of like selling and, and going up market and changing how we build product to support that. Hey, we're going to get back to the episode in just a moment. Before we do, though, if your goal is to create a self-managed business, one that can thrive without you, you need standard operating procedures so your employees know what to do when you're not around. SOPs can be really powerful if you create them right, but there are some mistakes a lot of people make in creating SOPs, including the medium you use and the way you actually create them. We've put together a little ebook that you can download for free just go to builttosell.com slash S-O-P. Now back to the show. Got it. So it sounds like there was this triggering kind of idea that in order to, to get to the next level, you were going to have to make some considerable changes to your business, maybe professionals, et cetera. I'm wondering, as you got to that horizon, that plateau, so to speak, and you looked out over the landscape, at the various options. Obviously, one was to sell the company, which ultimately you did. What were the other options that you considered on the table at that point? 
Yeah. So we, the order of operations was we weren't, we actually weren't selling. We active campaign came and, and asked early on um, if, if they could acquire the product, but you know, and then it took us a while to like agree to that. But uh, the options were varied. You know, there's some days where I really was like, let's do this. We can do this. You know, like how fun would it be to, to do sales our way to, you know, maybe that was, the verdict's still out of whether it would have been fun, but you know, in my head, I could, I could convince myself that, that we could get there, uh, that we could, that we could find our way to it. The other option was what we really wanted to do was to be this multi-product. And we were investing a lot of our efforts into being a multi-product company in the truer sense of the word where Postmark gets a dedicated team, but we still have enough space and resources to create something new. Uh, so we were spending a lot of time thinking like what, how do they, how do we operationalize those two things together so that Postmark has everything it needs to continue to grow and support customers and the team. But also we have like a smaller team that's investing in the future, like what, what comes after Postmark or what comes in parallel, but in a different, in a different vein. Uh, but I think the, the truth is that when Active Campaign reached out, uh, I guess over a year ago, uh, you know, just casually asking if we would be interested. They caught us at a good time where in the set in in that we were feeling tired, feeling burned out. And, you know, I had been fielding these calls. Postmark was like two, right? Like I mean it's always it's like email is so lucrative and so and everybody wants email and we were, you know, always kind of the private one that hopefully somebody would want to acquire at some point. So we're always getting these calls. But I I took that call because of kind of where we stood just emotionally and personally and said like, okay, we are questioning how to do this climb. We're questioning whether we want to do this climb. What's the right, what's the right solution there? And maybe there is, it is time. Maybe it is time to like, let the team go, give them more resources. We won't hold them back with this multi-product thing and being profitable and all of these things and let them kind of take off. You referenced uh, where you were at emotionally and personally, maybe just go deeper there. Where were you at emotionally and personally? What was going on for you? Uh, a lot of stuff, I think. You know, timing-wise, the pandemic uh, hit right at our 20th anniversary of running a, our company, and uh, about at our 15 years, about Chris and I had set out to say we want to build a business to sell. Not because we want to sell, but because if we build a business that to sell, then you actually build a business that's really great to run. And then we have options because, you know, operationally cleaning things up, making sure we're not in the middle of things, making sure the team can run on their own. All these things that, you know, are paying sales tax, like all these things that are just like make the business easy to sell, make it much more fun to operate. And so we had said at the 20 year mark, we want to have choice. Not that we want to sell. We didn't think at the time we would, but we thought like that would give us a really safe place to be. And the way I was, I've been, I had a friend tell me this in EO, uh, in our, my EO forum a bunch of years ago. And somebody had told him this, that like entrepreneurs need to think in decades because that's about how long it takes, like from an idea to, to hope, an exit or whatever that execution is. And he's like, so you have to look at your world and say, how many more decades do I have? How many more tens do I have? That's kind of how I think about it. So you know, 2020, we were hitting our, uh, it was our 20th year in business and the pandemic hit. And so at that time we were working on this, you know, big 20th anniversary kind of marketing campaign, but also just an internal campaign of like celebration. And Chris and I felt like we had another 10 in us. And we kind of reflected on that again, a very personal level. I've always run this business very personally. And they said like, we have two young kids, even if we wanted to sell now, our life couldn't materially change. You can't just travel the world, right? I gotta be home. 
I have two weeks vacation in the winter and, you know, whatever. So it was like, it wouldn't change materially. And I love my team and I love what we're doing. Let's go game on. And then the pandemic hit. And so we spent the first, you know, year or so just keeping the team feeling safe, making sure that the business was safe, but making sure that the team was safe and, you know, really suppressed kind of any of that self-exploration that everybody was having, all, all our employees were having in the early, in the early time. So come 2020, one, it was our chance to start really exploring. And to be honest, we were just really, really burned out. I think I'm sure the pandemic had a lot to do with it, but also just uh, the industry, the, the software industry is changing a lot. It was a rough time in the industry. I don't know what it's like now. I hear it's still kind of been rough, but it's changing. It's shifting. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of uh, really amazing things that's going on. And there's a lot of things that I don't agree with that's going on. And so you know, we had to kind of, we were looking at and saying like, okay, we have to do this next 10 and, and scale and do all these things that we're not comfortable with. We've never done before. I think we could figure them out, but we've never done them before. Uh, but under, under the pressure of this kind of evolving industry, that's changing a lot and, uh, having really just direct conversations, like what else would we do with our lives? And I was reading a bunch of books about like, you know, uh, Bo Burlingham wrote a book called, uh, Finish big. It's finish big. Book. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Finish yeah. big. And so I read that a couple of years ago and I read it again and I was, you know, just reflecting on kind of uh, how we want to live and, and what we want our lives to be. And the truth is we're both really young. I've never done anything else in my life. And so just going through those exercises of like, what if, what if? Uh, so when they reached out, we were in this place of just kind of like really burnt out emotionally uh, and just feeling a lot of pressure to make a decision on like, and, and it felt almost like a little bit of a trap because we, this is what we do. We climb that next mountain. We hit the next plateau. We climb it again. That's all we know. This is who we are as entrepreneurs. And yet, you know, we're kind of like, I don't know if I want to this time. And that was really challenging. I mean, just, I think for me emotionally to get to that answer, to even just be able to say it out loud without like my whole body physically reacting to it was really hard. It took me months, months to just even physically say, maybe I could do that. Because yeah, there's all this pressure and all this stress in mean, my team, and how am I going to keep them okay and everything? They have to be okay, and I have to make sure that they're okay. How could I even do that without making sure my team's okay? Uh, but you know, allowing myself to explore that went from that physicality of like I could never sell. That's crazy. How could I do that? To okay, maybe I could one day. To then dreaming. Okay, then what would I do? And seeing myself and Chris physically react differently like really do you feel it in your body where like getting excited again and dreaming about things and we're not dreaming about software things we want to open a hotel or do something else you know all these things and and just seeing the light and like the energy that was coming out and you know honestly i had to be honest with myself and say like that's what you want and at some point you have to make a decision for yourself not for everybody else uh and that, I mean, I don't know if that, so it's a lot of, a lot of emotions, but that, that's kind of the journey is like that happened at the same time when they reached out. And what was beautiful about that was that when they, when we were having, we just took a couple of conversations early on, just really, just to see if it was even feasible. And what was beautiful was that they understood on their side that the team mattered so much to us and that this was something that we had invested our whole life in. And so we spent most of our conversation around integration and culture and team. It wasn't money. It wasn't what's your CAC, what's your LTV. It was truly like, can this work? What would that look like for Chris and Natalie? What would that look like for Chris and Natalie's team? You know, 
what do we do with 32 hour work weeks? How do the, how do we work? How does, how is that going to integrate? And that created honestly, like had that conversation gone a different way, we, I don't know what we would have done, but because that conversation was kind of in parallel going, oh, maybe it is feasible. Maybe we can find a safe place for folks. Right. And so I think those two things together really got us there. I want to get into how you told your team and the way Active Campaign approached your team. I think that's a really fertile place for us to spend some time. But I want to just go back to something you said a few minutes ago, which was that you were feeling just really burnt out. So you kind of all hands on deck during the pandemic. It was just getting through, making sure everybody was safe and and okay. The worst of it, I seem to have passed and then you're you, the, the kind of weight of it all sort of hits you. I'm, I'm wondering, and again, I think there's a lot of listeners who could probably empathize with that feeling. Like they, they led through the pandemic because they knew they had to be, you know, the mom or the dad of the business effectively, like it'd be there, like the, the, the rock for their employees, everybody could turn to them, et cetera. And then Every, you know, the worst of it subsided and then they realized that they're just not well themselves, right? Like they've, they've been really um, holding on tight personally. And I'm wondering for those folks, how do, and how would you counsel somebody who is, is trying to decipher between, did I just have a bad week or am I burnt out? And, and I think as entrepreneurs, we've all had that experience where you've had a, you know, a crappy day, an employee leaves, a customer leaves, whatever. You wake up the next morning and miraculously, you kind of feel refreshed, right? Like, you're like no, you know, like we, and, and I think that's one of the things that distinguishes us as entrepreneurs, right? Because some people, that'll derail for months. And, yeah. and I think one of our, you know, secret powers, if we can use that term, is that we are able to bounce back. But I'd be curious for you to counsel someone who's who's saying, but Natalie, I don't I don't know if I'm burnt out and I need to sell my company or I'm I'm just having a bad day or week. How would you help them think through that? I think for me what I realized was those that bad day turned into a week, turned into a month. Um, and I I can say for myself, and maybe this is helpful, is the what I was saying to myself shifted dramatically. It went from, I got this, let me move on to something else exciting to like, I don't know if I can anymore. This is too much. Like, why is this happening? You know, I get really angry very quickly. I'm not an angry person generally and definitely not with, you know, when things happen in the team, I get emotional and all of that, but I don't get angry. I was angry a lot. Uh, I think the, for me, what was really profound was the idea that, just the idea coming into my mind that like, just sell it enough. Like you can't do this anymore. Right. Like just the fact that that even came to mind, uh, was really, was shocking to me that, that, that thought would even just kind of run through my head really quickly. So I, I, those, those moments were different and because they were different, I knew they were important to, to reflect on, you know, I know myself enough to know, like, you're right. You can have bad days. You can have a key employee leave. You can have something, you know, happen and it drags you and it's hard. And, you know, all of that, but these, these were consistent. And the other thing that I noticed for myself, uh, is how much the, 
small things started to impact too. The things that normally I'd be like, whatever, okay, I'll deal with that one later. They started to hang heavy. So you, I could tell I was, I was just not operating on my full potential. Like uh, my, my, my game was, was, was shot. And that was clear to me that, okay, this isn't, this isn't right. Like I was giving up on stuff. I mean, what's the difference in burnout and depression, right? Like they're all kind of, it's, it's, it's extremely related because there is this just no desire to move on, right? No desire to fix it. Like just anger and frustration and, uh, you know, physically just feeling down and, and, and yucky. And so I, you know, I think, you know, from a really tactical standpoint, I have a, a therapist who I love, who I've seen for a really long time. And she, when we were kind of going through this, like, can you start journaling? And I was never a big journaler, but she's like, just start journaling. And she's like, I don't know why. I think it could really help. Like, maybe it's not you're on this journey. And selfishly, I started journaling because I thought, you know, and she made a comment, you know, like, not a lot of women sell companies, especially software companies. So maybe there's something interesting there. And I took that as like, oh, this is a good idea. I'll journal because maybe I'll write a book one day. I'm not going to write a book. But, you know, that helped my brain kind of go past this, like, you know, whatever. And I started journaling and then I would go back and read the pages and the pages would all start with like, I'm so tired. I'm so sad. I'm so angry. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of negative emotion day and day and day. And, you know, you got to read it, right? And you read it and you're like, oh, okay, there's something very, very significant. Journaling has been amazing. I started it a year and a half ago, right around like when I was starting to really feel down and, and when we were even contemplating selling the business and it, it was trend, it's been transformative for me because I can see it and every once in a while I'll just page back and just read the first couple sentences because it gives me a sense of where my mental state is at the time. Even if I, ugh, my favorite, I'll look back and be like, that wasn't so bad. Why were you so sad? But the fact that I was writing that I'm sad, you know, gives a glimpse into where I am, you know, in my, my physical and emotional state. I'd love to explore where Chris was at on at the same time because Chris is both your partner in business but also in life as I understand yes. it yep. and you know one of the things that I've heard before is that couples should never actually threaten to divorce one another at the worst moments of of of, of arguments, never throw out the nuclear option because once it's on the table, once you articulate those words, it's sort of a precipice past which it's hard to come back from. You can't untoast that bread as the saying goes. Now, I know in, in your case with Chris, this was not a marital breakup, but I would be curious to know what was the... What, what was the posturing between you two I'm kind of curious, like who went first? Oh, <laughs> who, who was the first one to say, maybe we should tell? And and what was the other's reaction to that? And do, do you know what I'm getting at? Like, yeah, who's absolutely. Sort of break that that unspoken creed. I, I mean, I could say, you know, and I don't want to speak for him. He he had a a very different journey from me in a lot of ways for longer than I have because as the business grew, he's the he's the creative spirit behind the company. He's the product person. All the product ideas are his. He's the tinkerer, the, the person who loves innovation and change and all of these things so much. Uh, and as the business grew, a lot of it became more operational. And and that's where I thrive and, and building culture and companies and teams and all that. And so we actually work extremely well together. We're, we're business partners and, and life partners and best friends. And like, it, it's, it's a very, you know, corny, but truly, honestly, it, it is that for us. So, He's had a, a different journey because it's been a struggle as the products have grown, 
because a lot of what he can bring to the table has to get operationalized and it's not as fast and creative and, and, and uh, as scrappy as we were and small, it's just different. It's always different. And so the multi-product innovation thing was his, his area. And so he was really focused. He wrote a brilliant um, kind of product innovation life cycle that we were using internally that, you know, I still want to apply to some other things. And so like, that's really where he, he, he was at. He got there faster than I did uh, partially because I think he's more honest with himself and he's not as scared. He wasn't as scared of it. I was terrified of it. So he, of it being of selling, of selling. Yes. Yes. Mm. Terrified of it. So I think he was, he was, uh, he was able to envision it better than I was that it could be okay and we'll make it and it'll be fine. And I was just terrified of even acknowledging the thought. So, uh, he got there first in the sense that he, you know, we, we're on this journey together. So it was always going to be like a joint decision and we both had to be all in. So I think for him that summer, not of 2021, I guess, when we were really, really feeling it, uh, he was having those, he was initiating those dialogues with me to say like, can, we can, I think we can, let's talk it through. Let's think. What was your first reaction when he brought it, brought up the, the first, for the first time? I can't remember exactly uh, the first time, but I, I think, you know, I almost always uh, in those early days uh, just couldn't, I, you know, I would think like, you're nuts. Like, we can't do that. Like, no, we'll figure it out. Like, we'll get through it. It's fine. Everything's fine. Like the, we know this, we know how to do this. We have a team that relies on us. How are we going to leave them? Like, what is, you know, all these things. I just couldn't, it was mostly like, stop. I'll figure it out. We'll figure it out together. We'll find, we'll, we'll figure out how to make sure that you, you love your job and, and we'll make it work and, and we'll get there. Uh, so, you know, I, I think he was very gracious with time for me, like really, really wanting me to get there on my own. No, never pressured me. Uh, really, really wanted me to see it for myself so that, you know, now that I haven't even thought about that, thank you for asking. That's really a lovely question. Uh, he really, uh, he gave that time to me to make sure that I could find my own safety in it. Uh, and, you know, by the time we said we're going to do it, we were both like fully committed and both feeling like this is, this is our project together. And it's a little ironic, you know, we've been reflecting on this a little bit. We're, we're really good working together because we have these two different brains and, and it works really well. And what makes our relationship so strong and, and a partnership as entrepreneurs so strong is because we can work really fast and really creatively together because we can kind of like work off each other really quickly. And when we got into the state of like, okay, we're going to do this. It's the first time in years where we felt that energy of like working off each other really well before it got really hard. And we could talk about the time, you know, before the actual work began, but in the kind of scheming and thinking about like structure and, and what, we, and what are the questions we have and how do we work on it? And what do we do next? And what, you know, this, what financial advisor do we need to hire? And what do we need to tell the account? You know, all these things, but we were working off each other again and we were in a project together because we had built the business eventually operationally efficiently. He ran product. I ran the front of the house. Right. So we didn't get to like interact that way. Uh, and that was another good sign of, yeah, this is right. We need to get back to something smaller. If we're going to do something again, we'll do something small again that we can kind of scheme together on uh, before it gets big and we can't scheme anymore. 
you know, we often talk to entrepreneurs on the show about the importance of push and pull factors. So push factors are things that frustrate you about your business. In your case, it was, you know, this, all the SaaS metrics and the, the professionalizing and the going to the next level and all the pressure associated with that. And then pull factors are things you want to go do next, the exciting, you know, new projects. Uh, it sounds like one of them was potentially a hotel on the, <laughs> on the horizon. What impact did planning your next chapter have on your mental outlook about this project? I think it was huge. I think in, uh, in finish big Cal said that, you know, you really, what he found was that it was really important to have your next thing so that you didn't feel like you were floating in space. And I can say that I did that. Well, we're still kind of, we're taking a year off of a real year. It's probably going to be a year and a half off of like not doing anything else. Uh, so right now I'm floating a little bit in space, but, uh, that, act of dreaming. And that's what I said to my team when I told them, I said, that act of dreaming was so profound in giving us a chance to, or, or convincing us that this was the right decision. Because up until that point, I was so committed to the business and what we were building that we were dreaming within the business. Like, you know, our kind of multi-product dream scenario was that the, the pitch to my team was, we are a bunch of really smart people. We can build anything. We don't even have to build a software product. What if we build a, a physical product, right? That was, we were we were dreaming within the confines of what we already had. And I used to joke with the team all the time, a wild bit hotel, a wild bit release, uh, retreat facility, whatever that was. Uh, so dreaming outside of the context of wild bit and allowing those thoughts to really like, you know, just to play. We would Google stuff. We would like write things down in Rome and, you know, like all these things, just kind of like periodically just letting that process flow through and watching how much energy it produced, right? Watching how how exciting we got, and that's your 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 pull, right? Like seeing it, and and we did not, like I said, we have not committed to anything. Hotels a dream, but I'm waiting for the moment where we finally do all the research, and we're like, this is. You go from software. There's probably uh, hospitality entrepreneurs on the on the line right now that are like, "Don't do it." But everybody I've ever talked to is like, "The margins are so hard," you know. So maybe I'll look at it. And I'm like, never mind. Software margins are hard to beat, but. Uh, truthfully, just dream, having the opportunity to dream to even just think about something else. And I will say that that is, I've talked to so many other founder friends. I had one founder friend who were, we were, they were, had an offer to sell for, you know, again, life, like huge, huge sums of money as well. And they didn't. And I asked them why. And they said, I would just start the same company again. And that makes total sense. Like if you're just going to start the same company again, why start from zero? Just keep working on the company that you love. If that changes, when that changes, right? Uh, in the Derek Sivers, right? If you if you care, you have to you have to let it go. Uh, that's a that's a great 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 line that was really important to me. If you really truly care, you have to walk away. If you realize that it's not it for you anymore, and we cared so deeply, and the fact that I wasn't just dreaming about ways to innovate, Postmark and, and Wildbit and all that, I was dreaming about a hotel or or what have you. I was, that's a clear sign as you ever need it, but also just this a reminder constantly. Yep. I'm on the right path. This is the path for us as painful as it is. And it was painful. Uh, it is the right journey. What was your reaction when active campaign approached you? I'm curious to know what you said to them when they raised the specter of a potential acquisition. Um, they raised it to my team. Actually, they were on a call with, uh, some of the leaders on my team because they were working on a partnership and they raised that. And to 
beloved members of my team had two different reactions. One was like, they'd never sell. And the other one was like, everybody has a price. <laughs> so and they both brought that to me and I laughed at them. And I said, just contact, let, let them contact me. And I think that was surprising to the folks, and especially in hindsight, because normally I'm like, I don't want to talk to anybody. But uh, the initial reaction, the initial phone call was very much just like, hey, we have no interest. We're not shopping. We don't have a banker. Like, this isn't what, what we're doing. But I'm curious. The team was excited about an integration. What did, what did you all have in mind? Like, we'll, we'll listen. And we listened. And, you know, I, like I said earlier, I was impressed by how the folks that we were working with directly during the, the transaction, uh, how well attuned they were to who we are. They were customers themselves. And, you know, the person that we worked closest with had their own small, has their own small business that they've used our product. It's one of his favorite products. So like he, he really understood who we were, who Chris and I were and approached it really thoughtfully. And so we got off the call. I was like, oh, okay, maybe this is, maybe it's worth a second conversation. You know, there was just, um, there was a lot of understanding and, and maybe empathy over how difficult this would be if we took it on and that we'd have a whole list of demands, which we did. And I think I maybe, I think I maybe rattled off my list of demands, uh, thinking what like, was that's on your list of demands? Scary. you know, there was, uh, a lot around like the team. Well, one, Chris and I don't work for anybody full stop. So there, there was no, we've never worked a day for them ever we sold and that was it um we help with the transition but we don't we don't want to work for anybody there was a bunch around you know the team and culture and like how are you going to support them what about the 32-hour work week what about the way in which we work um you know we i, I mentioned a little bit we had this 10 percent bonus that we wanted to give to the team that we, we ended up giving the team there's big checks in there and so i i didn't want that to be you know up to debate, like that's my money, and I, you know, give it. But you know, for an acquirer, it totally makes sense for them to be like, whoa, 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 you're gonna write people these big checks. How am I gonna get them to come work for me, right? So you know, there was just like a lot of a list of of things. I could probably dig it. I should probably dig it up. It's probably somewhere in a document. But there was a list of things of like, you know, what postmark customers need to be supported. Don't raise prices on them. Don't you know? Don't don't ruin it. Don't break it. This, our support team's amazing. Like, you know, there's just all these things that like, I knew I wanted to preserve for as long as I could. Right. I'm a realist too. Like, like I'm not going to, nobody's going to promise me the world for more than 12 months. You know, like it's, they don't know what the future looks like. They have to have space to change, but I, I rattled off all these things in one of our early conversations thinking they would, you know, say, no, thank you. That's your too high maintenance. And they were like, sure, let's talk about it all. I was like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, I think just kind of, constantly, you know, almost like slowly getting to know each other and try to see like, is this, is this a realistic thing? And I kept kind of feeling okay. Did you put a number down for them? In addition to your other list of demands, did you say it's your offer's got to be north of X? No, we had a number. Um, Chris and I always had a number that we've had for a long time. Uh, and, you know, at a very practical level, we had a number that we went to our bankers and we said like, this is my lifestyle. This is how much I want a year. Uh, what do I need in the bank? And they gave me a number. And I said, great. That's the number. And uh, that number shifted a little bit over years, you know, as things got things got a little bit met. But we had a number. And so, uh, and we had a number based on multiple. So that, you know, some of those things kind of aligned. Like we knew that generally at the multiple we would have gotten on a product of our size with, the, you know, the profits that we had 
we knew the multiples were really high right now, but also that the product was, was big enough to, to achieve that number. So all those numbers aligned, but we didn't ask for a number. We just kind of said, you know, it's a growing product and I don't want to sell it. I think they knew that they were going to have to, you know, be successful in convincing us to, to part with something that's growing quickly and, and doing really well, very profitable. Uh, yeah, I'm so trying right. to think of, of when the deal, when did the deal close? April 21st, 2022. Okay. So, so six months ago. Yeah. So this is, you would have had benchmarks of other SaaS companies, uh, before the kind of recent sell-off. Oh yeah. So no, we, we, we caught what a sort of ranges, What sort of ranges were you seeing other SaaS companies sell for, uh, like, Eight you to know, twelve. Eight to twelve. Wow. Of revenue. Yeah. Yeah, SaaS software is crazy. I mean, honestly, my dad sold a humongous manufacturing business, like huge, multiple Home Depot, Lowe's, like all this. They did really well, but the size that their business had to be to net a similar, well, you know, whatever comparable, like percentage wise to what a software business has to be. It's no wonder everybody wants to be a software company. <laughs> Yeah. Whether that lasts is a different question, but yeah. So yeah, probably eight to 12 was, you know, the big, big public stuff was doing 15 to 20. Yeah. 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 Got it. So this, so that, so, so you left it in their hands to come to you with an offer. You, you didn't sort of say it's gotta be this, but you did tell your bankers. Yeah. So we, uh, we hired an investment banker when we, took it seriously and we said like, okay, if we're going to explore this, I talked to several founder friends and all of them were, were that have sold and all of them were like, do not do this alone. You don't want to do this alone. It doesn't matter what they charge. You don't want to do this alone. And so I interviewed several different bankers, uh, and, uh, ended up landing on a company that, you know, that I loved and, and they supported us. And I can't imagine having done it without them. Uh, can I name them? Yeah, sure. Okay, it's Founders Advisors uh, out of Birmingham, uh, and uh, really, 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 really wonderful people. Uh, so we hired them, and I was very trained. I was like, we have an offer. We actually at that point had had another interested party again in, inbound, um, and I was like, you know, I just I want somebody to. I don't know what questions to ask. I don't know what the deal terms should be. Like I don't know how to read a term sheet. So, or an LOI, right? An LOI, I don't know, whatever the, the words are. And so. Uh, uh, we hired a banker in September to support us. So, you know, kind of from a timeline perspective for folks, just, you know, try to do math. They reached out in the spring of, of 2021. We didn't really have a call with them until the summer of 2021. And then uh, had a couple conversations. And then in September, we uh, hired a banker just to, you know, really assuming it wasn't going to work out, but hired a banker to help us make sure that, we asked the right questions and had the right support and all of that stuff in September of 2021. And we had a letter of intent uh, in right around New Year's and then uh, closed in April. What was your reaction to the letter of intent? Oh gosh. Uh, I don't know. We, the way we, the way we organized it was we, even at that moment at the letter of intent, we, we knew we had an exit. And so I think like a way out, 
So I think we like out of the deal. And so I think at that point, we still had a lot of doubt that it was going to be, it was going to work out. Like, I think there was this, like, maybe we like had a glass of champagne and then just put it to bed and just said, okay, we'll deal with it. But, you know, we got to get into diligence. Like, we have to see if this is really going to work out. So I don't, you know, I've never done this before. And everybody tells you that it's not as scary as you think. It's just painful. It's, it, it is, it's, it's, it's painful. Uh, but, you know, when I talk to founders who had done it two or three times, they're like, it's all your emotions. It's very transactional. Like, you know, if you remove the, which you can't remove the emotions, but if you remove the emotions, you know, there was probably not that much at risk at the time to like get from, from LOI to close, but we had never done this before. I didn't know what boogeyman was standing behind the door or any door. I don't know what doors there were and I don't know what was behind those doors. Uh, and I also wasn't sure if we would ultimately land on a, on a, scenario where I felt the team was going to be safe. And that was, that was priority for me. And I think, you know, if you ask them, they'd probably say the same thing. We spent most of our diligence on org structure and what are you going to do with the team and how are, how, you know, comp, comp structure, all kinds of stuff, things that I'm told happens later. But like I, we started with that. I was like, that's priority number one. Tell me that these things are going to be okay. And then sure, you can, the code's fine. The product's amazing. Customers love us. Like, you know, we're simple. We're like, Accounting, banking's really simple. Like all the, the finance stuff is simple. So it was like, that stuff wasn't the hard part. It was really making sure that we were all aligned on like what was going to happen with the team. Are they going to be safe? What was the stickiest part about the team? You know, probably more from an emotional standpoint, they came to Wildbit, which is, you know, as you said earlier, do things a little different um, or small. And I knew that I was going to have to ask the team to go to a over, you know, 1500 person company, do things very differently, backed by big, big money, you know, doing marketing and sales and their marketing company, you know, so just very, very different culturally. And, you know, the folks at Africa Fame were immediately like, we know that we're culturally different. And what they ended up doing, which I was really grateful for, is they actually brought in the Postmark team as its own team. So they didn't force them to integrate into the greater active campaign team. They provided them with the support and resources, and, you know, and there's things that, that, that go on there that, you know, I'm not privy to, but, but ultimately the more and more we talk, the more we realize that it's going to be really hard to support the customers and keep providing the product that we, that they love. If the, our folks have to change the way they work and, and, you know, have to go to more meetings than they're used to and, and have to and bring new people out. Like, it's just, it's going to be too hard. It was going to be too messy. And they would be unhappy, right? Like, let them ease into it. And hopefully, I'm hopeful that some folks really love it there. But I also know, and I think everybody knows, like, not everybody wants to be at a 1,500-person company. And that's okay, too. I, you know, everybody went. So, like, the whole team, Active Campaign took everybody, including folks who weren't directly working on the product, which I was also grateful for because we weren't going to have a company to run you know so i was like i didn't know what i was going to do with folks like i can't you know i don't need a three-person people operations team when i have no people to operate on uh to operate on to the operations that require a yeah, people's yeah. team yeah. um and so they they off made offers to every single person on my team can you paint the picture for a listener of how you told your team of your decision to sell your company. I'd love for you to describe it. What was the smell in the room? What was the, 
uh, day of the week, uh, what was the sound level, and they're like, just describe it so people can get it. I think a lot of people uh, imagine selling and think this has got to be one of the hardest things Terrifying. that they would have to do. So how did you approach it and describe it in as much detail as you can? It was absolutely terrifying and the thing that kept me up at night. And the worst of it was when I was the time between when we agreed to to do this and from when I could tell them. I really didn't want to tell the folks too soon. We're in a unique situation. I didn't have like stock, like folks that were invested, right? So I didn't tell them early. I told them when I knew it was a done deal, like when I felt like it was really going to happen. I didn't want to put that pressure on them so that they were questioning their lives for too long. So the answer to your question is it wasn't one day. I told almost every single person individually. Um, I told the leadership team first. Well, Chris and I split it up. We told the leadership team first. And uh, by and large, uh, so we very structurally, Chris and I wrote down a whole list of kind of tactical things, but also knowing that once I say the words, it's like firing somebody. Once you say the words, everything else becomes kind of hard to hear. So we had uh, a list of kind of important things we wanted folks to know. And, you know, just talking points for ourselves to make sure that we hit on some of the things that, you know, again and again, to make sure everybody heard. But we told our, our leadership team first. And uh, the first person I told was actually Dana, who is our head of CS, who's worked with me for 11 years or 12 years or something like that, uh, but has been somebody who I've known for a really long time. She's worked for Chris's brother before she worked for us. So something really, really special and important in my life. And uh, I will tell you, it was a Sunday and we had gotten to this point where Chris and I were like, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're doing it. Like We're doing it and we're going to go tell the team. And I texted her and I said, hey, you got a minute. Everything's fine. And I sat here in my office on a Sunday and I FaceTimed her and I started crying and I was like, everything's fine. But Chris and I had an offer to sell Postmark and we're going to do it. And she said, she stopped, paused for a second. She said, okay, let's do it. Great. And I was like, you have questions? She's like, so many, but okay, we're going to do it. So I cried and she cried, you know, and the whole thing. And we talked for like an hour. Um, and that was actually very similar with everybody. So we, we had an individual conversation, mostly with all the leadership team, uh, about a month before we were scheduled to sell, but you know, we were delayed. So like it took, so about like, they kind of sat on that information for about two months. Uh, we, I didn't let them tell their team, until or we didn't tell their team together until the week before we sold so that was a decision that i really struggled with because a lot of people say you tell them after you sell or the day you sell and i really struggled with this and you know i have never been deceitful for my team and so it just i felt really awful about that but i also didn't feel like it would be very authentic if i came on and said like hey i did a thing here you go like it's done and so uh, Billy actually is the, uh, from Founders Advisors really helped us think this through. And he's like, you know, this is who you guys are. This is this is this is what folks expect from you. And so what we did there was we a week before I jumped into all the team meetings um, of the team. So I guess by that point, some of the engineers had known like we had to loop in certain individuals to help with diligence. And so those conversations happened the same way. And I, you know, and they all had a similar arc that I would love to share. But but I think generally, you know, from a tactical standpoint, we ended up telling every individual team. So I jumped on these calls 
uh, either the one-on-ones or the calls with the team. We're remote, right? So nothing happened in person. But I jumped on the Zoom calls and I would just share. And then I would leave the Zoom call and let the leadership team field questions without me in the room because I wanted them to have at least a little bit of a safe space. And then there was a lot of conversations there. But I will tell you that our experience generally followed the same arc with every conversation. And for this, I still feel very lucky. Uh, The initial reaction from everybody was, uh, they were all so happy for Chris and I. I was so petrified that they would hate me. And that's all I worried about. I was like, they're gonna hate me. They're gonna think that I, you know, I ruined everything. And I, I, you know, and they were so, genuinely happy for us and then you know they sleep on it and then come back the next day and they stayed happy for us but then when it hit there was a lot of uncertainty for them and so it it was a good reminder that people can have multiple emotions at once like two things can be true at the same time they can feel like they're not mad at me they they know that was right for us and they're you know they're for by and large i think folks are grateful for everything we've done and so like they are glad that we made a decision for ourselves but they were also very uncomfortable and very uncertain about what that meant for them do I want to go work here? What does that mean? I mean, the level of questions, especially from our team, very intentional, very meticulous, uh, was was really painful. But then once everybody knew, I held an all hands. And then that way uh, we could all see each other and I could repeat the same information again. And so everybody knew at that point, but we went on the Zoom all, to do an all hands and I just shared some more you know, now that like everybody had their 24 to 48 hours, I shared some more about, you know, why we made the decision, what that meant for us, uh, why we chose active campaign, what some of the promises are, some of the things they really want to uphold, why we felt like they would be a good partner for Postmark customers, for the team, uh, and just had a chance to, to just be with the team for a little bit. And, you know, my hands were sweaty, my heart was beating so fast and was so, so worried. Uh, and they were incredibly gracious to Chris and I, just so, so gracious and, and really, to this day, like folks send us emails like, how are you? We miss you. I hope you're doing well. And, you know, and they might not be happy or they might be frustrated about something else, but they're still kind of, uh, they can see both of those paths, right? They can be simultaneously happy for us and uh, uncertain about their own future. Well, it sounds like that loyalty is something you earned over many years. And so it's, uh, it's certainly well, well deserved. I am curious though about one thing, and that is you were quick when active campaign came to you. So we'll give us your list of, you know, <laughs> demands, so to speak, if I could use that word. And you were like, well, Chris and I don't work for anybody. And it was really quick and really emphatic. And and I, it occurs to me as you're just describing, you know, your employees that you did want them to go work for Active Campaign, and that you were hoping that they would make that transition. So, what's the old expression? What's good enough for the goose is good enough for the gander. Like, why was it okay for them to go work for somebody else, but you were so rigid? It was almost the way you said it a yeah. few minutes ago. It was almost like, like. Like that's black and white. Like we are never crossing that line. You are never going to get us to work for anybody else, period, full stop. And if, right now you would talk about the, you know, the, the, the SaaS world. Um, one of the playbooks is private equity company comes in, buys 60, 70% of the SaaS company, and then you hold 30%, continue to work with the business, sell the other for the so-called second by the apple. You were, again... I don't think I've ever heard somebody as emphatic as you said, well, Chris and I don't work for anyone, period, full stop. Next point, <laughs> it was not open for debate. So take me through that. 
why are you so adamant about that? What is it about that notion of working for someone else that sits so, so uncomfortably for you? I think that the, the honest truth is I didn't see a reason for it. Like the, the PE route, we, we talked it through. I mean, founders wouldn't have been doing their job if they didn't walk us through a, a, a scenario, right? Of a, of a PE uh, transaction, keep the 30% we work through for the next five years and second bite of the apple. But uh, we didn't need more money. <laughs> like, so that didn't make any sense. I didn't need a salary. I also honestly like the, uh, the purpose of selling was to have a break, to, to take that time to, to be free of all the, the constraints that have been around our decision-making for the last, you know, for our entire adult lives for both of us. And so if we had stayed, it would have just prolonged that period. Right. So there was a point where I was like, well, if it, if it helps with the team transition, if you think we're useful, we can go, go. But I will say the other part is honestly, in that, in that scenario, we were completely useless. Like when we, at, at our 15 year mark building the business, one of the important parts where we said like, we want to build a business we can sell meant that Chris and I could not be in the business. So in the actual business so that we would be necessary for a transaction. Like I held a role at Wildbit that was replaced by their people, team, their CEO, their, you know, GMs, like all of that. Chris held a role that was so focused on new product that like our head of product, Rian ran that product, right. With Chris's console, but like ran it. And so that was a lot of work that we did to get there. That was really intentional. So the idea of going to work for somebody felt kind of goofy to begin with. Like, what do you want me to do? The only thing I could do is help play interference between the new company and employees to try to make sure that that transition was safe. And I offered that in, in that capacity if that was necessary. The team actually didn't want that. They wanted to go full into the company and just not have a go-between. Uh, the first point you said, though, is something really interesting. And I don't know if that's what you wanted me to answer, but I will tell you that the the me not going, but asking the team to go has haunted me and continues to haunt me in a way that is really difficult to explain. But I have had tremendous guilt that we, the way the deal was actually structured, um, it, there is a, there's an earnout, but most of the earnout's going to the team. And it's, it's timed over, to, over a 12 month period. It's based on some milestones of completion, but like ultimately it's over a 12 month period. So what I asked everybody was to stay for 12 months. I said, go and stay for 12 months at least, but mostly because I, the customers needed us to make sure the transition was there. We needed some time to make sure the team settled in. Folks needed, you know, a, a job. Like, why well, do not anybody have to go look for a job? Like, even if I wrote all those bonuses up front, like everybody would have to go look for a job immediately. Uh, and so the way it was structured, actually, I think it was really good for the team. There's multiple opportunities, like all, all these things. And, and again, I think they did really well for folks really, really well for folks in, in the transition. But I have felt a lot of guilt because in some ways I was like, did I, you know, I did, I, I gave them handcuffs, golden handcuffs. Right. And I feel a lot of guilt towards that. Uh, and uh, I don't know, I don't know that there was a better way, but it was the way that we, we designed the deal. And, you know, I think for the most part, especially now it's kind of nice. You know, there's a 12 month period we're six months in uh, and folks are, you know, acclimating and, and can make a decision on what they want to do. And an active campaign knows that, that in 12 months, folks are probably going to make a decision. And so they're actively making sure that they're having conversations and taking care of folks and all of that. And, but I do, I, with the way you said that, at least when you started that your question, I have, I will be honest that that has, that has been 
really, really painful. I would have loved some magical formula where the company just took the product and took care of customers and nothing bad happened. And the team all got paid a ton of money and got to go take all the time off and nobody had to make a decision that they didn't want to. Uh, I didn't, I didn't have that option. I don't know that I, I don't know that, that option would have ever really existed in a product services You're company. Disneyland. I'm not sure that exists. I know. Ever, I know. Already. So I tried my best to structure in a way where, you know, they active campaign gave the whole team 32 hour work weeks through the end of the year. So for, wow. which it's not forever. And I know everybody really wants it to be forever. And I, I wish it could have been, but I also understood their perspective. They're a 1500 person company and they can't just be like, Oh yeah, these, these people can work really well for four days a week, but the rest of you can't like, that's hard. And, and you don't just start a four day work week willy nilly. Like these are important decisions. You're like, but they did that for them. They allowed them to stay, um, like in a self-contained unit. So I think for a lot of folks, I think leadership is probably a little different, but for a lot of folks, day-to-day feels pretty much the same. And that was really important. I was like, if I'm going to ask people to stay for 12 months, you know, in this in this bigger company and get to know it and all of that, uh, I'm hoping that their day-to-day doesn't change dramatically. And at the end, you know, for, I mean, even the folks who were with us less than a year, they got a check, right? So like everybody got a check, but for a lot of people, it's really significant money to make choices, awesome. to buy houses, to take time off, to, you know, to do whatever, whatever makes sense for them. That's awesome. Good for you. Are you up for a little lightning round before I let you go? Just a quick answer. I'll do, uh, sure. do a couple questions. Sure. What's the slimiest trick an acquirer tried to play on you? And I know you dealt with a lot of inbound inquiries, so feel free to broaden the horizon from well beyond active campaign to all the potential acquirers that sort of knocked on your yeah. door over the years. Slimiest trick. Um, there was a PE, a private equity firm that tried to find all, maybe it's not slime, maybe it's smart to me, it was slimy, find all the founder friends that I've had over the years who they've transacted with or knew somebody who transacted with and would try to get them to reach out to me directly. And so I'd have friends text me and be like, so-and-so is asking me if I can give you your, if I could give them your contact, if you'll talk to them. I'm like, no, like, I know I said no, but I wanted to let you know that. And they did it like three or four times. So I would get these like random messages from founder friends who were like, so-and-so is looking for you. They want, they really want to get to know you better. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to get to know them. I, he's emailed me a hundred times and I've said no. I replied always. I never ignored anybody. I replied always, but I was always no. So that's probably the, the most creative one for sure. Bit slimy. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest mistake you personally made in the process of selling your company? Uh, becoming extremely emotionally attached to the timeline. We had Say more. To, we had to delay a couple of times. Uh, we were so stressed out about not telling the team and holding them in the dark uh, that we really wanted a really short turnaround on diligence, and we had agreed to really short turnaround on diligence. But as these things happen, it takes longer. And every delay, uh, we became extremely, like, extremely upset and, and and angry and emotional and like really frustrated, and you know that caused tension. And I think in hindsight, it was like an extra forty days or forty five days, right? In the grand scheme of this life changing event, it doesn't feel as significant. Uh, but in back in when I was there in that in that moment, it was more time to not tell a team. It's another all hands where I have to not be truthful and, and have to look them all in the eyes and not tell them what I'm doing. And, and every one of those just felt heavily emotional. And I wish I had worked more on the uh, emotional, like 
worked more on seeing the realistic uh, out like uh, results of that versus this kind of really emotionally driven. Just we would just go bananas, like just so angry, and and I'm not doing the deal, and blah blah blah, and it's like okay, hold on. And sometimes it was probably warranted, right? Like some of those delays maybe weren't great, but but ultimately it all worked out, and uh, I could have saved a lot of gray hairs, I think, had I not allowed it to really get to me. Nice when you've got Billy as your foil not to uh, scream yeah. at the actual buyer. I, yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't know. Never do it without a banker, and especially if you can get somebody like Billy. He, just, he was like our therapist for six months. I mean, he kept this like <laughs> afloat. We wouldn't have made it. <laughs> Uh, you were already uh, you already mentioned uh, Bo's book, Finish Big, which I'm I'm thrilled that you did. Great book, everybody should pick it up. I'll put it in the show notes as well for folks. Are there any other resources that you turn to uh, in order to educate yourself about the process of selling? Um, you mentioned you're an EO. Was there any uh, was that helpful? Or were there any courses, books, speakers that you can sort of point people towards that might be helpful? Uh, there was. Finish Big was good. It's actually funny. Anything you want, Derek Sivers, the one I, I quote in the end, it's a very short read. Uh, he talks about his, his Derek Sivers, CD, CD Baby, and uh, sold uh, that company. And Derek Sivers, we've had on the show, actually. Oh, okay, great. Okay, so I don't have to. That's great, right. Yeah. So uh, we'll anything you want. We'll link up to uh, Derek's episode. Yeah, uh, it was really great. It's very short, but it's, it's a lovely book because it kind of just walks through his, again, very personal journey of why he sold at a very concise uh, mm -hmm. concise level. Uh, I can't, I, I haven't been in EO in a couple of years. That was from a forum from a while ago. I think, uh, ultimately we leaned really heavily on our advisors and, uh, other friends who've sold. So I, I can't say this enough. Like if there's a community or if there's anybody, if, if anybody listening wants to reach out to me, they're welcome to like having, uh, a more candid, non-recorded conversation around how and and how it goes and how it feels. Those things. What are real expectations? Like, am I being unreasonable? You know, like all that stuff. Because even Billy, you know, can tell me all day long that I'm being unreasonable. But I want somebody who isn't, you know, incentivized. Even though they weren't like that, that he was always right. But you know, just somebody else to tell me, like, yep, yep, that's okay. Like you're, you're being unreasonable. Uh, so I, I really tried to surround myself with folks who have been there before, uh, who could help me really just talk me off a ledge, talk me through an idea, talk, tell me their experience and how that went. You know, before I went to go tell the team, I talked to a couple of founder friends who had been there and, they really helped me, you know, like, how did it go for you? What were the reactions? You know, what should I be thinking about? What questions should I be prepared to answer? You know, like all of that kind of stuff. That's like real life. Um, that, that was really important to me. Good for you. What did you buy yourself as a trophy? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I promise. I know I mean that. Natalie, I, I mean you that. And Chris must have bought yourself something. <laughs> no. Some guy I had on the show said I bought a toaster for my wife, another oh, a coffee maker. So if you let me down here with nothing, you're going to take the cake as the worst guest on the trophy question ever. And that is unacceptable. Uh, you and Chris must have bought yourself something after 22 <laughs> years of running this company. Um, okay. What did I buy myself? Um, 
man, it's a hard question because our lifestyle hasn't changed. So like one of the things that was so important at Building Wild, it was we always supported ourselves and, and made sure that our lifestyle matched the size of the business we ran. We never starved. We never like sacrificed ourselves for others. Like from the most part, I, you know, I live a nice life. Um, the, this is going to sound so goofy. The, the thing that we maybe are buying ourselves and it's an active process is we are building a house and we have been for a bunch of years, a weekend house. And uh, I really wanted a, so, so silly. I really wanted a tile pool, a swimming pool with tile, not like the sprayed, you know, kind of the kinds they have like in Italy or in warm climates. I live in Philadelphia. It's a terrible idea. So we're going to tile our pool. So that's uh, awesome. Okay. And not the a whole tiled pool. Swimming pool. And not, not the whole pool, just like the, you know, the, the kind of a little bit further than the, the frost line. But uh, we did say like, oh, okay. Um, we can do that. So we're going <laughs> to tile the sewing pool. But, you could spring for the tiles. Yeah, well, you could spring. You could I mean, it's expensive. Uh, absurdly expensive. I'm like, when they first yeah. quoted me that, I was like, we're not doing that. That's, that's, not, that's not acceptable. But now I'm Crime like, okay, River. Crime yeah. River, Nagel. I'm really worried about your uh, I know. The, the tile expense. It's, <laughs> it's probably breaking the bank. I'm so thrilled that you have a tiled pool to look at to commemorate 22 years of incredible sacrifice. <laughs> Ingenuity. I wish I bought a toaster. That would have been so cool. The toaster. I'm not sure if that guy's still married. Um, <laughs> it was great to have you on the show. Where can people reach you? You were generous saying people could reach out. I, I hope you were genuine in that. Where, where would people do that? Is there a LinkedIn profile or email? What's the best? Email is great. Uh, Natalie at wildbit.com. Wildbit's still awesome. business. So that email is still around. If it takes me a little bit of time, it's just because I'm genuinely retired and so i check my email very infrequently but i do check it and i have an amazing assistant who will handle that as well to make sure that i don't anything falls off but no please i mean i'm i i you know it was an incredibly life-changing experience for us i have never felt my friends tell me that i look much more relaxed uh and i'm an incredibly better mother now than i was running running a four day a week wow. company so uh I definitely recommend it for anybody who was feeling like I was and, and ready to make the leap. Natalie, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, John. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation between John and Natalie. If you did and you're not subscribed, be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you love today's episode, then share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly enjoy listening to today's conversation. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms used, go ahead and visit the episode page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great guest, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the podcast with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labatagula for handling the audio engineering and thank you to the community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.